I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome along. It is Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Tim Adler. Uh, he's been around words always, working as a journalist and a magazine editor and a commissioning editor. And he's got a brand new psychological thriller out. It's his fourth novel. It's called Dead Already. Now, we talk about why he's such a thorough plotter. Also, how he manages to edit with a, a new perspective and a fresh eye. And you can hear why he tries to make irony the linchpin of his storytelling. Say that a story of a man who's terrified of water... And he has to confront the biggest beast in the ocean. Well, that's Jaws. Two theatre producers have to find the worst play ever, only it turns into an enormous hit. Well, that's the producers. But they've both got irony. I think irony is really important in the pitch uh, for any book. So once I've got the once I've got the pitch clear in my head. Uh, then I'll start plotting in more detail. There is more with Tim Adler in this week's Writer's Routine. Welcome along. It's Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. This is where we take a look inside the working day of some of the most successful authors. I've been a classic Brit this week. You know, um, I moaned all spring. I mean, we did have a wet spring, but I moaned... I'm going to say I moaned excessively about the wet, miserable spring. But but this week here in the UK, um, it's been too hot. I mean, there's hot. It's been too hot. Um, <laughs> if you're here, if you've been feeling like I have, I hope you've managed to, to find some space to write, some shade to get your words down in the oppressive heat and that it hasn't been too off-putting. If you have struggled a little bit, well, I mean, you've come to the right place. Perhaps you can get some motivation and some inspiration from today's guest. Tim Adler is a journalist who's written for The Times, for the FT. He's been a magazine editor. He's edited for The Telegraph as well. And he's just published his fourth thriller called Dead Already. Uh, It's about an old East End gangster who's been haunted by the ghost of his daughter. So it's kind of a gangster story crossed with something from the more ghostly genre uh, it, it's a nice mix some interesting problems for tim to solve there in his writing and i mean we we discuss why for tim writing is all about problem solving also you can hear why he took on a writing course interest in that tim's been surrounded and working with words pretty much all of his life but he, when he started to write novels he went on a writing course 
pretty much just because he loves being a student and he thinks that's really important for other authors. We talk about why he wants his characters to be out of time. And we start, as we always do, with what Tim Adler sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. The first thing I see is probably uh, Coco the Sleeping Chihuahua, uh, because I like to write in bed in the mornings. Uh, Like a lot of your listeners, I have to write around the edges of my life. You know, I'm a full-time journalist, so I have to squeeze in the writing when I wake up. It's about sort of half five in the morning. Um, I do about a, an hour and a half, you know, and then I have to get ready for the day. So that that is my kind of, you know, sacred space to do the writing in. Um, I work, again, like probably like a lot of your listeners in a, uh, in a spare room. Um, and you wouldn't really, I mean, I have, you know, obviously I have a desk, but I don't have a whiteboard or things pinned up uh, on the walls. The only time when I do have stuff pinned up on the walls is uh, when I'm planning a book and then uh, the wall will be covered with post-it notes um, because I spend quite a long time planning and structuring uh, books before I start writing them. I'm I'm not at all a pantser, uh, I believe very much, and especially with something like a thriller. I think what readers are buying it's a bit like a Swiss watch, you know, it's got to work perfectly. And to do that requires a lot of thought, actually thinking about the innards of a story and how it's going to work. So I'm in your room and you've got the post-it notes that are there. Do they stay up as you are writing when you're telling your story, when you've when you've finished planning? The, is that still there? I'll, well, I'll spend about six months, or well, certainly with this book, I spent about six months uh, planning the story. And I'll divide the post-it notes. Uh, you know, I have a theory about story, which is that every story needs to have an inciting incident, mounting complications, uh, what I call the midpoint, further, a higher crisis, and then a resolution. And so the post-it notes will be in a line, a vertical line of five by the time I've finished, probably covering, you know, 50 or 60 chapters. Um, and once I've put that all down into a Word document, that'll turn into a long synopsis of about 15 to 20 pages. And once that is set, then I'll actually start writing. Two questions immediately leap from that. Uh, before we get back into the space and the day of your writing, the um, the the inciting incident and and the five things that you listed which make up every good chapter how have you developed this theory through what rigorous study have you come up with these ideas well my background is um i was a film and and tv journalist for uh, a long time uh and i've read a lot of books on screenwriting and eventually you know most of them end up saying the same thing I mean, early on, it was always about the three-act structure, but I think that that's kind of an artificial conceit because the three-act structure came from theatre productions where you'd have, you know, an interval or two intervals um, in a play. And I think that uh, a a five-act structure uh, is is much more how stories work. Um, And, uh, you know, I've also applied it to my own journalism, writing features, 
And um, the first time I tried it, I thought, well, I'm going to use this kind of novel writing structure for this feature. And I got a, a, an email back from the editor of the Daily Telegraph saying this is a fantastically, fantastically structured feature. So uh, my my theory works. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and also, when you are following such a tight structure, do you ever worry that it can be easy, easily telegraphed by a writer, uh, by, by a reader, sorry. Um, uh, and I guess it then is this, is the skill in making sure it's, it's not easily telegraphed beat by beat by a reader. Well, I see it more like a, a, a bottle, uh, that, you know, every, that you, you pour the story into and bottles can come in all shapes and, and sizes, but it has to be a bottle and look, it's not prescriptive. I mean, with the book that I'm currently writing, you know, it, it's changed a lot since the original uh, synopsis. So you can still um, improvise, but I think it's very helpful as a way to to roadmap or, or understand the shape of the story when you're when you're starting it. And let me drop you back in your in in the room in your spare room. Aside from the post-it notes and and the plot points that you, these five things you're building up. Is there anything else creative that surrounds you that just helps inspire you, perhaps when you're at a little bit of a low ebb? Well, apart from the numerous cups of coffee, I mean, um, uh, like uh, I'm sure, like a lot of your listeners, um, once I've got the treatment or the synopsis ready, then I'll move into Scrivener uh, for the actual uh, words. Although I say that, the next thing I do, and again, sounds really old fashioned, but I write the whole thing, the first draft I write entirely by hand because, you know, my, our, all our days are taken up looking at screens and you know, that's exactly what I don't want this book to be about. I don't want it to be about the internet and screens and, you know, so I want, I want to make it kind of hard for myself in a way. So I do the whole first draft by hand and then I'll put it into Scriver and that's when you can start uh, playing about. With the first draft by hand, this might be quite a naive question. It might be too easy. Do you feel that that has an impact on the story you're telling when you're writing it more romantically, kind of um, hand to page, uh, doing it as it was once done? I don't think it's a question of of, of romantic. I think it's more a question of... Um... You know, things look good when you're typing them on screen. And I know that a few weeks ago you were laughing and said you'd had a, a reader comment saying, what font do people write their first draft in? But actually, that was a really good point. It's it's a really, I write the first draft when I get into the Scrivener stage, I write it in this font called Lucida Handwriting, because again, I don't want it to look like a book. Um, because, you know, computers can make anything look really good. So again, it looks like it's handwritten. And then maybe the next draft I'll put into Courier, which is the typewriting font. But by the time it goes to uh, my agent, it'll be in Times New Roman, which is the industry standard. Um, Again, it's about trying to come back to successive drafts with a fresh eye. And I don't want it to look good at that stage because, uh, you know, I want all its faults to be there and, you know, as much as possible. With Lucida handwriting, uh, again, 
did that take you a long time to kind of figure out what would work best for a first draft in Scrivener font-wise? Well, it's, it's you know, each each book, you write each book differently. I mean, when I started um, uh, writing, you know, I, I began my kind of author career writing nonfiction. And I, again, I probably did have a romantic idea at that stage that everything had to be uh, handwritten. Well, writing a nonfiction book by hand was uh, turned into a logistical nightmare. Um, so each book is different. Each book seems to have a different way uh, that I want to write it. I know that it sounds a bit super geeky and anal, but, you know, it works for me. Now, let me ask you this before we get into the right, the actual routine, the point why we're here. Uh, you're a hustler, right? I mean, uh, you were, you do, you wake up at half five so you can write before you work. Um, you pitched yourself to me. You go on your website and you you, you give away eBooks at times as well. Um, where does that come from? This 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 need to get yourself out there to to do things to make people aware of what you want to do. Well, believe me, I would love to just lie on a chaise long. And, and 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 write with a quill pen on sheets of vellum but the author business has changed um, especially since the invention of self-publishing and uh, you know I've been fortunate uh, my last um, well both this book dead already and the book before that were picked up by uh, some, what the Americans call small presses what we would call independent presses but I self-published a couple of books before that and rightly or wrongly writing the book is only half is only half of it you've got to get out there and market yourself you know i don't particularly enjoy doing it i much prefer the writing but even authors with or mid-list authors uh with big publishers you know now have to spend a lot of their time tweeting instaing facebooking you know it's, it's part of the job so everybody has to get out there and hustle a bit. I wake up early. Um, I never have any problem getting started. Uh, and maybe that's the help of having a synopsis. I know where I'm going. Um, so I will write for an hour, hour and a half each morning. Um, then I'll stop. Um, maybe in the evening I'll go over what I've written um, uh, and do some polishing. Um, but... You say it's a routine. Increasingly, I think of, of of writing like being doing yoga. There's no end to it. It's just something you do every day. Your practice. And I was thinking there was a story about Tennessee Williams, the American playwright, and somebody found him going through one of his plays in a book, correcting it. And they said, Tennessee, the book, the play's already been published. And he kind of looked at them rather blankly. And I can, although I know that's absurd, I can kind of understand what he was getting at, just because you could, even with the stuff I've had published, you know, if I, if I went back to it, I'd probably be horrified at what it, it looked like, because it'd be so full of errors and things come clumsily phrased. So for me, even when you reach that point of finishing a draft, you've got to just start again the next day on the next draft. I just see it as being an ongoing process, and then eventually it's taken off your hands. How many days a week do you like to work on this? Oh, I like to work every day um, because, you know, I only have, because again, I've got a full-time job. So I, I like to work every day. I also think it's a bit like going to the gym. You know, if you want to stay in shape, you need to exercise every day. Uh, writing is a muscle. 
you hope that you get better at it with each book. So it's important that you keep exercising um, and develop that muscle. And you've got many things that you then do after you write. What constitutes a good day for you? What are you happy with when you get down in the evening when you when you sleep? Um, well, I mean, one thing I, d- I don't concern myself about, especially at first draft stage, is word count. Um, you know, uh, I know there are some writers out there, especially self-publishing writers, who bang out 2,000, 3,000 words a day. I couldn't go anywhere near that. I mean, if it's 150 words, 300 words, you know, that that's good for me. Um, I mean, one thing that I do sometimes is just close my eyes, not even look at the keyboard, which I know sounds amazingly pretentious, but you're, you're, it's all about trying to put the reader inside a scene and make them feel and breathe it. And so for me, it's about the quality of concentration in the time that I can carve out doing that writing. It's, it's kind of like meditation. If you're writing this early in the morning then you've got to go off and do your day job in which you are a journalist and and you you surround yourself with words a lot is it not like having a busman's holiday for you why you why are you so dedicated to getting up and telling these stories when you are writing all the time anyway well there's a huge difference between writing a thriller uh and uh and 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 being a journo uh, being a journal, it's about getting out there, finding out information, preferably stuff that nobody, that people haven't told anybody else. It's about exclusivity. Uh, it's about disclosure. These are very different muscles than being a than uh, than being a novelist. I mean, I think being a novelist is more like a form of self therapy. I think each each book for me is about answering. Each book for me is about answering a problem. And, you know, that's the thing about life. The problem keeps changing. My first thrillers, uh, Slow Bleed and uh, Surrogate, were about missing children. And that's because at the time I was a single parent with two small children. And obviously that was my deepest fear that something bad was going to happen to my children. And in a funny way, kind of writing thrillers about missing children helped me kind of expunge my kind of deepest fears. And I think that if you're writing a good thriller, a good question to ask is what's the thing you're most afraid of? Was that conscious, do you think? Uh, The idea to, as you say, expunge your deepest fears? Were you sat there thinking... Right. What terrifies me? What do I want to explore? What do I want to make better for myself? Or did it just naturally, that's what your brain was playing with all by itself? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I was asking the question, you know, what is the thing that I'm most, most frightened of? And when my kids were small, it was about something uh, happening to them. And they've got older, so maybe the question in Dead Already, which is the book that's coming out uh, this year, is, you know, how responsible is a parent for his for uh, for their child? So you know the que- the question has changed. Um, uh, you know the book that I'm currently working on is about betrayal and how long can one hold on to a sense of betrayal even if the betrayal was in the past. So the question keeps changing, but I think it's a form of a form of self therapy. Oh, well, I think that actually being a journo and having the uh, background of actually going out there and interviewing people is invaluable. 
Uh, I mean, I was kind of horrified on one of your um, writers' routine podcasts when you're interviewing somebody who said, well, basically, they just watch television. And if that's what they do on TV, it's okay by them. It's only by going out there and actually interviewing people. So for Dead Already, um, the hero of Dead Already um, runs a rather seedy strip club in Margate. So I went to interview uh, a fascinating woman who runs a strip club in East London who explained to me how a strip club works, how they treat the girls. Um, It was quite funny, actually. She said that uh, she found one, because, you know, some of the women that she employs, you know, are highly intelligent. And she once was once sort of had up um, on charges at the uh, magistrates and found herself being defended by a woman who used to work for her as a dancer. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, again, uh, you know, I've been into uh, a mortuary because I wanted to get that I think what you're trying to give the reader is the experience of what it's really like to be there. So, you know, I went into a mortuary um, to experience what it's like, you know, with, surrounded by dead bodies. I think it's important to give that reader that verisimilitude. Are you worried sometimes that when you've got all this information, that writing it down becomes almost a bit encyclopedic for an author for a a reader how do you go about putting them in the place where you've been without drowning them in all this info that you found out well yes um uh, the french writer emile zola said you make all these notes and then you forget all about them and so i'll make notes and i'll have a you know tape recording but when it comes to the actual moment i'm relying on kind of sense memory to 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 put the reader in that place as you say you don't want it to turn into a kind of encyclopedia uh, or 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 go all Dan Brown on it (laughs) I love the fact that that's that's almost a verb Uh, that's brilliant well literally well listen the new book is um is is dead already this is your fourth psych thriller um we'll run through it as we always do so tell me about the very first moment when this idea came into your head how did it present itself to you what was the light bulb well uh i was uh went away to spend the weekend in margate uh which is a um, seaside town on the north coast of kent and um i was walking along the street and i saw this child from the back who looked exactly like my son did uh when he was about five and i couldn't help but going up and just wanting to kind of go around the side. And of course, this boy looked entirely different, but from the back, they were doppelgangers. And that evening, I was chatting to the woman who ran the hotel, fantastic hotel uh, called the Walpole Bay Hotel in Margate, which is like being in an old Agatha Christie set. Um, And uh, she was telling me that a lot of the old East End gangsters, and I live in the East End, uh, when they moved out of the East End, after the you know bad days of the craze, uh, they some of them moved to Margate and these big suburban villas on the outskirts of Margate. A lot of them belonged to the old crims. So it was basically those two ideas coming together: an old East End villain searching for a daughter that he believes that he believes is dead, living on the outskirts in one of these big suburban Sopranos-style houses on the outskirts of the town. That's how the idea came together. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll get more with Tim in just a sec on the show. Very quickly, let me remind you that if you're enjoying the podcast, if you've learned something that has helped your writing... You can always help us out in return. Just a couple of dollars or so a month does us wonders over at Patreon. Uh, at patreon.com forward slash writers routine, you can get merch, thanks, uh, bonus episodes, and there is even a chance for your book to sponsor the show just by pledging a little every single month. Uh, you'll also be part of the writing community that we've got going on there kind of a burgeoning social network where we chat, where we share ideas, where we get advice from each other during the week outside of the show. And you can be part of that just by giving a little bit a month, a couple of dollars just to keep us ticking over to help us keep bringing you chats with the best authors around as often as we can over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Tim Adler talking about his new thriller, Dead Already. It's the the gangster, ghosty genre bender. We talk about how he figured out his style and why the look and the feel of the words on the page really helps that. Also, why he believes all writers are students, why they are always students and should carry on being students. And we pick things up about why he likes boiling down big ideas, high concept ideas to small pitches. One thing I strongly believe is that any genre book, whether it's a thriller or a crime novel, it needs to be high concept. You need to be able to sum up the book in a sentence. Um, So um, in the case of Dead Already, um, the pitch was um, Mickey Spake wakes up in a hospital bed and the first thing he sees is a get well card from his daughter. The only problem is that his daughter died 28 years ago. And... I think that high concept, it's a bit like the tip of a javelin. And it's the, it's the thing the whole book has to follow. Um, uh, and it helps you sell the book because eventually you've got to keep selling the book. You've got to sell the book to your agent. The agent has to sell the book to a publisher. The editor at the publishers has to sell the book to the acquisitions committee. So everybody's got to sell it all the way down the line. And if you can sum up the book in a, in a, in a pithy sentence, that's really helpful. 
And the other thing is that this, this high concept idea has to have what I call irony. So if you think of a story, say that a story of a man who's terrified of water and the, he has to confront the biggest beast in the ocean. Well, that's Jaws. Or uh, two theatre producers have to find the worst play ever, only it turns into an enormous hit. Well, that's the producers. But they both got irony. I think irony is really important as a, in a pitch uh, for any book. So once I've got the once I've got the pitch clear in my head, uh, then I'll start plotting in more detail. I guess, and and sorry to tread over old ground here. Um, I'm really keen on unpacking the way then that happens. So even before you've got your your the pitch, before you're thinking about selling it, before you have this irony. For Dead or Already, where did that come from? You, you've been to Margate, you've seen this. What, what, what questions are you asking yourself that turn it into the, the pitch of man in hospital gets cards from dead daughter? I suppose the, you know, the next thing you have to think about, well, who, who is your character? And you start thinking about the character. Um, and for uh, Mickey, my hero... Um, I wanted a character who was kind of out of time in that really he was still living in the past. He was still living in the 70s when he was working as a bagman for an East End criminal gang. Uh, and he's, absor- he's obsessed by this past. And um, so uh, I thought deeply about him um, and about his life and what had happened to him um, before, again, before I started uh, plotting it out, um, uh, and then it's a question of, of 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 putting up the post-it notes and rearranging them, and what if this happened? What if this happened? And for the first, when I was plotting the post-it notes, I just couldn't get the story to work. And the way that the book was originally structured was the first third was in the present day, the second third was in the past and the final third was back in the present day but it just wasn't working and I said to myself you know this isn't working Tim you've got to do something about this so I then went on a novel writing course organized by Curtis Brown the literary agency Um, and that was a six-month course um, and uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough and there were a lot of people uh, on the well I said there were about a dozen of us on, on on the course some had a lot of experience as writers, some had no experience as writers, some of them were absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, I was somewhere in the middle, but it was so helpful in understanding structure, point of view, pacing, style. Um, it was really, really helpful. And we've all kept in touch since, and um, several of them uh have gone on to get big publishing deals so it's a highly recommended thing to do why why did you feel that you had to do this that this was not something that you could sort out yourself and then what did the course teach you well i mean some people like being teachers some people like being students and i always like being a student and i think with writing you're always a student and you know for me I'd had a couple of novels, I'd self-published a couple of, no, I'd had three non-fiction books published, I'd self-published a couple of novels, I'd had one novel picked up by an independent press, but, you know, I wanted to get myself onto the next level and something wasn't working. And then for me, 
well, firstly, uh, it was being tutored by some fantastic uh, novelists, um, Erin Kelly, uh, the thriller writer, she was brilliant. Uh, but also an opportunity to get feedback and, and having that opportunity to have your uh, work critiqued uh, by, other, uh, by other writers is immensely helpful. And even though the course ended uh, a couple of years ago, it's something that we've kept on. Uh, we meet up once a month, we exchange manuscripts to get feedback. And now that we know each other a lot more, you know, the feedback is brutal. 80, 90,000 words of a novel is a long stretch to get inside someone's head. And, uh, you know, Mickey's background is that he's Jewish. His Jewish heritage plays a big part um, uh, in his upbringing. Um, he's had a lot of loss. So I was, I was, again, and I don't want to come across as pretentious, but I was trying to do something new with the East End gangster genre, which I didn't want to be, you know, shut up, you fugging Muppet. You know, I wanted to try and take it onto a kind of deeper level and splice the East End gangster um, genre with a ghost story um, and try and do something uh, deeper with it. So uh, I hope that I've done that. Let's get back to the synopsis. Uh, talk me through what it looks like. What does it consist of? It's many pages you've you've already... Uh, told us um, how thorough is it? If I read a sentence from your synopsis, what would it look like? Oh, the the synopsis is is pretty fleshed out, and um, um, you know it's in it's in it's in uh, quite a lot of detail. There'll be um, bits snatches of dialogue, um, uh, uh, so it is worked out in 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 quite in quite a lot of depth. Uh, it's a single word document. I'll then split it up into chunks. I'll upload load those into Scrivener on the right-hand panel, where it's the kind of index card, so I know what I'm. I know what's going to be in each chapter. Uh, it's immensely helpful. But as I said, it's not a rule. I mean, the book that I'm working on now, it's changed hugely since the original uh, synopsis. But you know, frankly, I need all the help I can get, and this is a good way of of making sure I don't have that panic. Of the blank page. I mean, how some of your authors manage to pants a novel is beyond me. I mean, I would just be terrified. I'm very keen to ask you about the words on the page, if that if that's okay. Uh, especially because if you're writing a gangster cross with a ghost story, um, these are both genres that evoke something in a reader before they've even read a single word. So you have to do them justice with the words on the page. Um, um, how much are you thinking through every single one that you're putting down? Oh, it's hugely important. I mean, that's the whole point of doing it. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't believe that in the end, readers remember characters. I don't think they even really remember plots, but what they remember is style. And uh, that's the thing I'm really aiming at is style. So, you know, when I think about the writers that I admire, like Graham Greene or Ernest Hemingway or Joan Didion, it's their style uh, that I remember most. I don't really remember the plots. I don't really remember the characters. They're all pretty interchangeable. But it's the, it's the, the, the look and the feel and the experience of the words on the page. That's the most important thing. How long did it take you to figure out your style? And how do you make sure you're still keeping true to that? 
Well, uh, your style again changes with each book, and you want, uh, you hope that your style uh, is evolving. I mean, the problem of being a journalist is that your training as a journalist is to tell or to get across the maximum amount of information in the shortest number of words. And my problem is that I always underwrite. So actually, I always have to go back and start fleshing out more because I can be a bit too hard boiled, a bit too pithy. Are you happy with that system of doing things? I always wonder when when writers, I know it's never this easy, but when writers tell me something like that, when they're fully aware of something they need to work on, I always think, well, why, why aren't you just doing it? Um, are, are you perfectly happy with that's how you add more words, just do it in the edit? I think, I mean, I think my... I think one of my faults as a writer is that I do tend to gallop at the hurdles a bit quick, and uh, you know I'm always conscious of of, of needing to slow down. I mean, do you remember? Did you ever see that film Whiplash with the yeah, with the um, with the the teacher? And he goes, "Are you a are you a rusher or a dragger?" When he's teaching the drums, and 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 uh, and uh, I think I'm a bit of a rusher. So something I've always got to be mindful of when I'm writing is stay slowing down, staying in the moment. You know, not hurrying on to the next twist or the next shock. It's something I'm mindful of. Uh, I know that you've worked uh, across various bits of non-fiction away from being a you know a, a journalist like that. But you um. Uh, what's different in the process when you do that than when you write fiction? Well, writing nonfiction is completely different. Um, I've written three nonfiction books and with nonfiction, it's all about the research. So for nonfiction, what you need is a photocopier and a printer because the amount of paper you generate is humongous. Um, so uh, my last nonfiction book, which was a family biography of the Redgrave acting dynasty, that took me about three years. And uh, for that, it was a question of doing all the background research first, photocopying books in libraries and assembling a, a, a filing system. So I'd have one set of files um, with the uh, names of people, another set of files with mark things like food, drink, cars, holidays, houses, um, uh, and then the most important thing was uh, assembling a timeline, not just the timeline of the of the person's biography, but what was going on in the world at the same time. And only once I'd assembled all that, um, by the end of that, I mean, my bedroom was looking like the NC Raiders of the Lost Ark. Once I'd assembled that, only then did I go out and start interviewing people. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Massive thanks to Tim, Tim Adler, for coming on. And also uh, a very personal thanks to him for being so, uh, for bearing with while I edited that over quite a long time. Anyway, let's move on. You can get a copy of his brand new thriller, Dead Already, over at writersroutine.com and in the episode notes as well, or wherever you're listening. Uh, now, next week, we're chatting to the crime thriller author, Leslie Cara, all about her new novel, The Dare. She has sold... A whole bunch of crime novels in the past, won awards for them too. And next week, she'll tell us how she plans her day to get that done. Uh, Follow us wherever you're listening to the show. That way, next week's podcast will automatically crop up. I'm also thinking of uh, a new bonus show. I don't want to say too much because we've seen before. 
I'm big into saying I'll do something and then not doing it. It's been a hot week, bear with me. But I'm thinking about trying to get a little bonus episode done for you every week on the main feed. So follow us, a very small bonus episode, but follow us there just so you never miss it in case that crops up before next week, who knows. Uh, You can also get in touch with us over at risesroutine.com and follow us on Twitter uh, as well and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and I will see you next week with Leslie Cara on the show. Until then, bye. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.